Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today we have an interview with the one and only Menno Henselmans, which is one of the smartest guys in the evidence-based space. He is a uh, newly published author of the book, The Science of Self-Control, which we dive into a little bit here, but we mainly go through like a Q&A. So he is an extremely experienced physique athlete. Um, he is a scientist. He is a research reviewer. He is the founder of the Henselman's Personal Training Certification Program, which is a PT course that dives deep into evidence-based practices and really teaches people how to um, dive into the research and take the most out of it. I highly recommend his content. I highly recommend his PT course. And I highly recommend his book. In fact, if you are somebody who is into evidence-based training or nutrition, you probably have already heard of him. And if you haven't, go Google his name and just start consuming his content. I mean, his blogs are fantastic. All of the interviews he's done on so many podcasts are amazing. I have learned so much from him over the years. Um, he's somebody that I've followed closely for, for quite a while now. And the thing I love most about Menno is his deep dive into research. He's one of the guys that really likes to pick apart research and find what's unpractical about it, where the holes are at, where they may have missed something. So um, his, his podcast debates are fantastic. When he gets on a podcast with multiple people and he debates a topic, he, he does really well and he always has a different outlook on the research studies compared to other people. Uh, but one of the coolest things is he's actually an online coach as well, which means that he's not just reading research or doing research and talking about it. He's in the gym training and he's, he's in the trenches coaching people as well. Uh, so we dive into a lot of different topics today. We dive into reverse dieting versus recovery dieting. We dive into uh, sleep, melatonin, uh, hypertrophy, periodization. We talk about a lot and then we finish by talking about his book, which is the science of self-control. So for all you who love learning about the science and, and practically applying it into your training and nutrition and lifestyle for better results, you are going to love this podcast. It is a great one, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. So once again, uh, this is with Menno Henselmans. You can check him out on his website, MennoHenselmans.com, which has a load of free content. I'm going to post that in the description of this podcast, as well as on Instagram, Menno.Henselmans, uh, and I'm going to put that in there as well, because you probably will butcher the spelling. But if you like this episode, make sure you do me a huge favor and share a screenshot of it on your story on Instagram and tag myself, at Cody McBroom, tag Menno at menno.henselmans and make sure that you give this a five-star rating and review on Spotify and iTunes. All right, without any further ado, let's get into this fantastic episode with the one and only Menno Henselmans. All right, Menno, well, I'm excited to have you on the podcast, man. Kind of like I was sharing uh, before we went live is I've been following your content for years and one of the things I really enjoy about it and what I love and, and really find so entertaining about listening to you speak on things is that you just seem to know so much about so many different topics. And there's been times where you've been asked questions on podcasts that almost seemed like they were left field from what the people were actually, the topic was actually about. Uh, but you pull research out and you, you have a lot of knowledge on the topic, surprisingly enough. So my first question, man, is, is really just for the listeners to get a better idea uh, of who you are is how did you get into the evidence-based space of training and nutrition? Like what made you go the route you did and start Bayesian bodybuilding and, and really get so fascinated with the evidence-based approach and research behind all this stuff? I actually don't know a lot of things. But I, I try to know a lot of things about the few things in life that really interest me. So I specialize a lot. For example, I don't watch the news and I don't know anything about soccer. 
uh, a lot of things that are common knowledge. If you play trivia games with me, for example, then there are a few things that make you feel like, dude, do you live on earth? <laughs> because everybody knows this, right? If you, some celebrity name, for example, I'm like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> so I get a lot of my knowledge from scientific research and that's in large part due to my education, I would say. I had a really good education at University College Utrecht University and Warwick University. And it wasn't even about fitness, but it taught me to be very evidence-based and science-driven and to respect and understand the scientific method. And that is basically what I applied later on in life to everything I did. So I started off as a business consultant, which was also a very data-driven profession. I was a data analyst. So that everything I've done basically in life has been data-driven, evidence-based, however you'd call it, different fields, you know, um, um, rational. Economists would just say it's, it's rational um, or you could say it's economical. And I, that really aligns with my personality. And I think a very big part of excelling in life is to understand that we as humans have the capacity for rational thought. And that's one of the things that makes us excel in many domains above other animals. But it's hard. It's not always easy to ignore your gut feelings and your instincts and to do things that are counterintuitive and to look at the evidence and even if it goes against your personal beliefs or biases but i think that it's you know the key to being superhuman yeah i love it i love it for the listeners real quick i probably should have started with this too um what what do you do now? Like, obviously I know what you do and I'm going to explain a little bit in the intro mm -hmm. that I haven't recorded yet, but um, you have, you know, your certification, you're obviously an author. Do you still coach? Kind of fill people in with what you do with this information now. Like what is your main role um, today? Sure. I still do online coaching myself, but my main business is the PT courses. So my international PT uh, certification program, which is also fully online. Um, um, it's 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 not fully online in, in France and Netherlands, but pretty much online. And the English version is totally online. Uh, but that's the the main thing I do, I would say. And also on my social media, I'm very much a fitness educator, so I digest scientific research and make it much more publicly accessible to people, so that they can uh, apply it in a, a real life context. And I'm also also a book author. I do scientific research, and. Um, I have some, some side things and public speaking, but really the main thing of what I do is educating people on how to uh, gain muscle, gain strength, be as healthy and lean as they would like to be in the most efficient and evidence-based manner. One, one thing I would love to add to that too, just for so the people can get a good idea from an outsider's perspective, uh, is that Menno has a really good way of, uh, and I mean this in a positive way, but critiquing research. There's been plenty of times where I hear people and you've been on plenty of debates about topics. And I feel like this might be why you have a really good way of really picking apart a research study and finding out what might not be totally accurate or maybe not totally practical or where the holes might be so that we can actually see it for what it is and probably encourages some research to go back and revisit the study. Cause we know that that has to happen on many topics is studies have to mm -hmm. be redone over and over again. Um, and I'm sure you, you probably have a focus of that, right? Like going into it and trying to find those things and articulating them. Cause a lot of people just read titles or take it for what it is or what somebody said it was and run with it. Definitely. I think it's very important, especially in fitness where 
the quality of research isn't as large as, for example, uh, in top psychology journals, which is funny because people, I think, might have the opposite ID because psycho psychology is a, a softer science, uh, as people would say, because it's about subjective matters, like uh, personal beliefs and emotions. But those can actually also be studied with very high quality. And evidence-based fitness is a relatively new thing. It's mainly since the 90s or so that it really became popular. And I think it's just going to become more popular because it's simply, it's about figuring out what works best in the end. It, it's not, um, it's, it's as applicable as it gets. And it's simply the best method of finding the truth. But where was I going? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we were just in regards to kind of debating different topics and, and really just picking apart research to find the holes in it. Right. So despite all that, it, it is, um, or as I said, evidence-based uh, research or scientific research in fitness uh, isn't always as high quality as in, in other domains. So I think in fitness in particular, it's very important to be critical and to also look at it from a practitioner's perspective to know, can you apply this knowledge? Does it make sense? You know, if research says four sets of 10 to failure, you immediately should think as a practitioner, yeah, that's impossible. You know, if your first set of 10 was to failure, you didn't get 11 reps, like you actually failed the 11 rep. That's what 10 to failure should mean if it's momentary muscle failure. Then there's no way you can do 10 set 10 reps for three more sets. Yeah. So you have to look at it from that perspective of both a practitioner and a critical scientist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's where like evidence-based is a nice term because to me, it's where science meets experience, you know, because a lot of people like yourself or, or the guys from Mass Research Review and um, a lot of the places that you tend to do debates with, whether it's Mike Isertel or Steve Hall and all these guys, they actually train really really mm -hmm. fucking hard too. So it's not just theories from written research, but it's actually like what they take from it and use it in the real world. Right. Yes. And there is definitely an area of researchers that does not train. And, and it's always funny to me when some paper says we took uh, 30 exercise science students and uh, they were not engaged in regular physical exercise. It's <laughs> like, where, where do you find these people? Yeah. <laughs> Why do you study physical exercise? or even something specific as uh, strength sciences and not actually lift, but there are a lot of those. Yeah. Yeah. It is actually very surprising. <laughs> um, so I, what I wanted to do because of your background and because of how, like I was saying, you pick apart research studies and you tend to just be a wealth of knowledge in these areas um, is take these listeners questions that we've got over the last uh, few months that I had that I think that would just be really good for you based on what I've listened to. So some of them, um, I've heard you speak on, but I know a lot of people haven't heard uh, an evidence-based approach to the answer like I know that you could give, and that's why I handpicked these ones. And the first one is about flexible dieting. And uh, the, the question is, does being too flexible on a flexible diet cause more difficulty due to hyperpalatability? And my assumption would be the question is kind of referring to uh, the, the effects that hyperpalatable foods can cause more cravings and decreased adherence maybe if you're being too flexible or you're kind of playing the macro Tetris game where you're just planning as the day goes rather than having a plan. Whereas being on a strict meal plan, like an old school bodybuilder, it's really cut and dry, right? And you're probably mm -hmm. not going to have uh, hyperpalatable foods. You have a plan, so on and so forth. But um, really just like the issues with being too flexible on a flexible diet. Yeah. So the optimum lies somewhere in between those two extremes for sure. There is direct research showing that excessive flexibility, especially in terms of food choices, is harmful to diet adherence. 
And that makes perfect sense, I guess, because certain foods are just so very difficult to fit into a meal plan, especially when you're cutting. If you're on 2000 calories and you're, you're trying to fit in like full fat white German sausages, for example, which are like 600 per hundred, you're gonna have a very difficult time doing that because they don't satiate at all. You eat like two of them and then, oh, damn, that was 200 grams. So, well, that's over 1200 of your calories gone. So then you're left with 800 for the rest of the day, which is technically possible, but simply psychologically and practically very difficult mm -hmm. for most people. So most people, I would say, also have experienced that successful dieting is very much about finding out which foods are worth it and which are not worth it for you. Because it's not about excluding foods and saying this, I can never eat anymore. That's what can induce a forbidden fruit effect. It's about figuring out which foods for you contribute the most value to your goals and which foods you do not find worth it. So when you can make that conscious choice, you can restrict foods and say, for example, for me, I never eat McDonald's. I barely even consider if I walk past McDonald's that I actually have the physical opportunity to eat there because it's something that's so far removed from my goals that I have zero difficulty not eating there. It's not like I have to restrain myself from doing it. It's over the years and with a combination of habits and um, goal affirmation that I found there is no way I'm eating these foods. And I think for most people, that is a really big part of learning to be successful at dieting, figuring out which foods for you are worth it and which are not. Do you, do you have a way, um, and this might be a can of worms, but do you have a way of kind of coaching that specifically or, or wording that? Because I think that, like you said, there's a lot of people who view it immediately as restriction. Um, but the truth is, is even though a lot of people for a long time, almost uh, to a fault, acted as if you can't say the words clean food. I don't know why that became like a bad word mm -hmm. <laughs> to say, but uh, they, they propone, they're proponents of flexible dieting. But if you look at a lot of people, and I'm sure that you see this, especially with the community that you're involved in, a lot of people who are in really great shape or who are very evidence-based or who are flexible dieters or maintain a leaner physique around, typically they eat kind of like a bro most of the time. And it's just how they choose to eat. And they still call it a flexible diet, but people don't see that. So I think they get the wrong message across. But would you agree with that? And is there a way that you try to explain it to people so they better understand it? Definitely. And I think a lot of people also partially intentionally contribute to that idea because if on Instagram, you only post your, you know, cheap meals. Mm. Um, and you only post, you know, the, the few occasions that you do have social eating events, and you never post what you actually eat, like 90% of your days, then of course, people get a very uh, flawed impression of what you eat. And I think for many models and the like, that's in part, at least intentional, because it's just look, I have the secret sauce to eat pizza and ice cream. And I can eat whatever I want and I call it flexible dieting. And it's, you know, people don't say you can eat whatever you want, but they kind of suggest it. Mm. No, there's, there's of course the caveat, if it fits into your calories, which is very difficult and you're probably going to be left hungry. And I don't do it all the time, maybe once a week. And I compensate for it by eating a lot of broccoli soup beforehand. So I don't starve, <laughs> but all of those caveats are sort of push to the side. And the main message is, look, you can eat whatever you want. There is no such thing as clean food. Uh, and that's just really not how it is in practice. I mean, for, for every flexible diet here with a six pack, there are like a thousand people that are watching these YouTube videos and thinking, why can't I have abs? Because I'm trying the same things. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. So true. I wait. It's unfortunate that you know chicken and broccoli or oatmeal and egg whites is such a boring thing to post on Instagram. So people don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I 100% agree, and that's why I tend to avoid posting my meals when I actually go out and have a burger or whatever it may be because it, it just doesn't it doesn't teach people the right message. So um, I love that answer. Um, the next question is about reverse dieting. Um, and I think it, it would probably be best to just get your take on it as a whole. Cause the question is kind of like, is reverse dieting worth it? Right. For a long time, reverse dieting very slow was the the popular way to go about it. And then, uh, 3DMJ made the recovery diet more popular. Um, and I think there was a lot of merit to that, especially with people getting as lean as bodybuilders, but then there's the gen pop who maybe don't get as lean and don't have to be so aggressive, but there's kind of these like debates, right. Between the recovery diet, the reverse diet, and then it kind of comes down to do you believe in a reverse diet or do you believe in immediate increases? And I, and I heard you speak, I, I want to say it was on Steve's podcast, um, Revive Stronger, where you, you basically said that you hate maintenance phases. You don't see the point in them uh, because it's and it, it made a lot of sense the way you phrase it because it's kind of like you're either dieting for a goal or you're not. And if you're trying to chase physique, you should be in a surplus building muscle or you should just be dieting in a deficit and you know, don't hang out in the middle, which makes sense. Um, but I guess the question is, do you still or have you ever liked reverse diets or are you more of the type to immediately increase in, in whichever way you tend to go? Why is that? I think reverse diets and maintenance phases are one of the few topics where I can give rather categorical statements and say I neither do I don't do either of them basically ever. Um, and my res- my foundation for this, for this is that I co-authored a paper on metabolic damage, the idea that you're sort of suppressing or damaging your metabolism with prolonged dieting. Mm -hmm. And we scoured the research for various lines of evidence in bodybuilders, athletes, um, athletes that do weight cuts, um, people that just do get very lean. The Minnesota starvation experiment, for example, which was a very famous study where they literally starve people almost to death, basically to bodybuilding contest shape, but without all the muscle. And then they refed them back up to um, their their baseline basically back up to where they were before over a very long study period. One of the most famous experiments and nutritional experiments in history now. And those people actually became sort of national celebrities. If you look at those data, it's very clear that there isn't a single scenario in which there's any evidence of metabolic damage. It's very clear that your metabolism adapts and it downregulates, like your energy expenditure goes down when you're in energy deficits and when you lose body fat via various mechanisms. One of those is adaptive pharmacogenesis, which you can think of as your nervous system becoming more conservative with energy when energy is scarce. And after, after the diet, when you go back into energy surplus, all of those adaptations reverse. So it's very easy to fall into the pitfall of, oh, look, the body, the human body is designed to keep us fat. And we have all of these adaptations in place that make it difficult to lose fat. But all of those exact same mechanisms also make it difficult to gain fat. It's just that in our current environment with hyperpalatable, hypercaloric foods, it's very it's the, the balance has shifted greatly towards it being easier to get fat than to to starve. But that certainly hasn't been always the case, and it's not like our body is, is wired to do this. I mean, it's not good for our survival in any way to become obese. Uh, fertility decreases, so there is no evidence at all that it's somehow detrimental uh, or you're putting a huge shock on your body. Uh, when dieting and therefore you need a reverse diet or a maintenance phase, you can just go straight back into energy surplus. I think it's also very good to realize for people that dieting is very healthy. That's, you know, it's difficult and you may not feel great, 
but your body thrives on dieting, on cutting, on losing fat. Every single biomarker, not everyone, but at least 90%, I would say, of health biomarkers that you can think of in the human body, cholesterol levels, insulin sensitivity, heart rate, basically all of it improves when you lose fat. And the leaner you get, the bigger the improvements. Only when you get to contest shape do some markers go down. For example, your sex hormone levels go down. Even that, it's contentious. If that's actually bad in terms of survival and longevity, like you'll certainly feel like crap. But actually, physiologically speaking, your body is um, still doing very well. So I think that that knowledge is, is, is paramount to understanding that you can push your body quite hard. And most of the struggle of dieting is mental. It's not physical. You're not breaking your body down. You're doing something that is actually very good for your body, but it's psychologically difficult. I'm glad you brought that part up because I, I don't think a lot of people are aware that there's, I believe there's a lot of research to show that a calorie deficit is more, uh, uh, it's more likely to prolong life, right? There's links to longevity versus a surplus is not. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that being said, you know, for this, for the person who is not getting contest lean, uh, let's say they're not getting on stage, but they want to get leaner than the average person, uh, but they want to sustain it. How do you go about that? Do, do you do the same exact thing? It's just that people typically who gain a bunch of weight afterwards, do they just forget that their maintenance is now not as high as it once was because they lost 40 pounds to get as lean as they need to get, which means just don't need as many calories to survive. Um, or do you still take that approach and you try to get them into a surplus afterwards, even if they, they're not after muscle growth after that cut, for example, they just want to lose the fat, stay lean. They're like more gen pop people. If you actually want to maintain, then you should be in energy maintenance. But I think for that's the case for very few people. Mm-hmm. I mean, women typically uh, still want at least like larger glutes, and men typically want well, they're at least they're they're fine with getting more muscular and stronger. And the difference is you can also eat more in the process when you're doing a lean bulk. So you can just do a very conservative lean bulk, and you'll still stay lean. But you can also eat more, and you gain strength, and you gain muscle. So for most people, it's like well, you know, do you really want to maintain? But okay, yeah, sure. If if someone that's really someone's goal, then you would actually maintain. For I've, I'd say that's probably for 99% of my clients that's not the case. So yes, I have them, um, I adhere to the exact same principles, whether someone's goal is to get to 15% body fat or 5% body fat. Afterwards, they go into surplus. The only difference is if someone comes out of contest shape, I may be a little bit more aggressive because you're actually in a state where you feel poorly, injury risk is higher. So we want to make sure that you're actually uh, going into energy surplus quite rapidly and also to prevent overeating. Like there are various mechanisms for diet adherence. For example, I may have some at libitum days where I don't track calories, but I tell them you're not going to change your food choices. So you're going to stick with the bro foods, but at least for the first week after the contest, for example, you can have as many of them as you want. And I think that's very important to normalize uh, hunger signals and to show them that, okay, you know, the, the hunger is over. And when the hunger is over, they're much more capable of saying, okay, now I can do um, a more deliberate, rational, lean bulk phase. But yeah, it's the, it's the exact same principles, whether you want to get to 10% body fat, 5% body fat. They might, there might not be a research study on this, so maybe it's just more of your, your thoughts or your theory. Is there like a, a, a balance to that throughout the year or a percentage where you're like, 
maybe you tend to want people to be in a surplus for at least this many months out of the year or do you do you have any type of rationale to that at all um, i'm just curious because if we're talking about like a deficit is is healthier for longevity in some of these biomarkers and obviously people want to get leaner but then people also need enough time in a surplus to build muscle it does not happen quick fat loss obviously mm-hmm. happens easier and quicker do you ever have like a practical ratio of the year that you tend to balance those two out so remind me of that question and first answer a bit of a tangent. Okay. The uh, idea that energy deficit is what increases longevity, mm-hmm. I think is slightly misguided because it's, it's not energy deficit, it's being lean mm. and fat loss. Right. So there are a lot of papers that actually argue, okay, if you want to be as healthy as possible, you should be in energy deficit. And the re- there was, I think I read two research papers, reviews by several authors where they literally argue Look, if you want to be as lean as possible, you should spend your life in about a 25%, 20-25% energy deficit. And I'm like, okay, so if you actually do that, then in say six months, you're going to be ripped. And then a few more months, you're going to be contest lean. And if you actually keep that up, then a few months after that, you'll be dead <laughs> because you've starved. Yeah right? If you're actually going to be in energy deficit all the time, you're going to get leaner, 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 leaner until you tap into essential body fat levels and you would literally starve yourself. So it's not necessary, I think, to be in energy deficit. It's good to stay lean because it's mostly the leanness that influences the hormone levels, the insulin sensitivity, inflammation levels, et cetera, et cetera. So the energy deficit itself is is probably not nearly as relevant. Uh, So with that tangent out of the side, uh, the idea is basically that you should be. You should stay lean. If you if you care a lot about your health and longevity, then you want to stay lean. And I think, for many intensive purposes, bodybuilding, not necessarily competitive bodybuilding where you actually go on stage, but the idea of looking being very muscular and rather lean, not contest lean, but very lean, are completely compatible and even identical to a large extent. I would say, like the healthiest physiologically, the way to be the healthiest human possible is to be rather muscular you probably don't have to be super muscular but it certainly can't hurt and lean which is you know bodybuilding and there isn't research on the time span of the year that you should spend cutting versus bulking but we can apply math and we can say that just based on realistic muscle growth rates and the energy surplus requires to achieve those and research showing that in natural trainees it's a very small energy surplus that you can uh, maintain and actually just make all of it or the vast majority of it go towards muscle growth. Whereas in energy deficit, you can be much more aggressive. I mean, just the simple math, like 5% energy surplus for many people is quite is a decent rule of thumb. Uh, it varies a lot per individual, but it's, you know, it's not going to be super far off. You're not going to find people that do well with, say, 40% surplus. Whereas in energy deficit, even if you're lean, you can typically do 20% or so uh, for quite a, a long phase. And if you're higher in body fat, you can even be more aggressive. And then over time, you have to taper it down. But the energy deficit is almost always going to be multifold larger than the ideal energy surplus. So based on that, and if we just actually look at the ratio of 20% versus 5%, then we can say, and I think this aligns very well with my uh, personal experience, probably the ratio should be like one to four which means three months of the year you should be cutting and nine months of the year you should be bulking, roughly. Um, so that's actually one to three, but it's, yeah, out of, out of four, proportional four. So probably it's going to be like that. Maybe you could even do actual 
one to four ratio, but it's, regardless of the exact figures that we may eventually end up with scientifically, I think it, it's clear that you should be bulking the vast majority of the year if you're a natural trainee at least. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a really, really good breakdown. And I think a lot of, uh, we have a, a very mixed audience and there's a lot of people who do not compete or take it that far, but they're very serious about it and they're getting into this stuff and they like understanding the science. So like they're, I, I call them advanced gen pop. And I think they need to hear that because we mm-hmm. probably see a, a lot of people who probably diet too long and don't spend enough time in a surplus doing what you talk about. And it probably makes that diet more productive because you're way more serious about it when the time comes to actually get shit done in that deficit. So, um, I really, really like that breakdown. Um, the next question is about sleep. And, uh, this is great because I believe you grew up with sleep issues, correct? Yes. I think I, yeah. Uh, okay. Non-24 is the okay. most likely diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. I've heard you speak on insomnia and, and melatonin stuff, uh, many times in, uh, one of the things you said, it, it kind of allowed me to morph this question. Somebody was asking about uh, tracking sleep, causing stress. And you you mentioned specifically that uh, tracking sleep can actually make it worse because then you're thinking about tracking your sleep and the data and all these kind of things. And it actually can cause like sleep anxiety. And then people aren't sleeping good mm-hmm. because they're thinking about not sleeping good. <laughs> um, so the question is really, does tracking, number one, is tracking sleep even worth it? Uh, and number two, you know, can it actually disturb your sleep from that anxiety? And I guess what would be your recommendation for what people should actually do? Most research finds that tracking any um, health-related goal itself, the monitoring of it, does not contribute to goal pursuit, which means it's not detrimental, but it's not positive either. Most of the research is on step counts and physical activity levels, uh, not as much on sleep. But so, yeah, most research identifies that it's probably not directly harmful for the average person, but also not beneficial. It's just like, oh, well, this is how much I slept. And really, is that, did you need the aura ring to tell you that? Because, you know, you kind of know whether you woke up this morning and you felt super groggy and you woke up because the alarm buzzed or you woke up naturally and you felt good and you know you've been in bed and slept for eight hours. So I think for most intensive purposes, subjective indicators in this case, and this is rare when I say this, subjective indicators are actually perfectly viable and the objective measures that we have are actually no better. Uh, combined with the potential effect for, um, for obsession and sleep anxiety, which is something that I have actually personally experienced, but mainly when I was tracking and I knew I wouldn't get enough sleep anymore. So it's like, okay, any minute I don't fall asleep now is another minute of sleep deprivation. And then it, then it, that's going to start messing with you. But for most people, I think it's, it's not as large an issue. It's just mostly useless to track your sleep quality. Plus, most sleep quality or most sleep trackers that we have these days are quite poor. I mean, if you look at the research compared to polysomnography, which is sort of the gold standard of measuring sleep quality, the main difference is that polysomnography also measures your brain waves, which is the principal thing you actually want to measure and anything that an aura ring for example measures or any other fitbit or whatever uh, measures is like wrist movements and heart rates which are very indirect indicators of things you know things that don't actually matter like it doesn't matter if your wrist moves a lot when you sleep um what matters is your brain waves because those determine which stage of sleep you're in so even the best trackers or commercially available consumer-grade trackers simply aren't very good. 
So overall, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of, of tracking uh, sleep issues for the average person, especially not when it's a case of, you know, trying to find a problem when either there isn't a problem yet, or B, it's very clear that the problem is simply you're not going to bed on time. Mm. Yeah. I think a lifestyle changes can help that a lot. Now I know you're you're also a fan of melatonin, and I had a couple questions that just kind of popped in my head based on that. Um, one is is just pretty specific. If you're consuming melatonin on a very regular basis, is there any reason to believe that you would grow tolerant to it, or you need to cycle it, or anything like that? Because there's there's so many so much misinformation on melatonin in general. And then also, I didn't realize this until I heard you say it, but why is it illegal in certain places? Like that blew my mind that because we live in mm -hmm. the States, it's you can buy it at the grocery store and as many milligrams as you need and it's cheap and it's easy. But you and uh, I can't remember who it was. We're talking about how it's illegal in some places in Europe. And I, that blew my mind. Yeah, in a lot of places here in Brazil, it's also uh, illegal. I'm pretty sure it's still not, you know, most people know how to get it, but it's actually not legal to um, um, to sell or buy it. I'm, I don't know the exact. At least you can't find it legally here. So. Uh, that's completely stupid because it's very safe. There are multitude of studies, very long-lasting studies, that show melatonin is completely safe. There's no addiction. There's no tolerance. There's no hormonal deregulation that you would have, for example, with if you take testosterone, then you're going to deregulate your own natural production. That's not the case with melatonin. It's one of those hormones that doesn't isn't regulated by a strict feedback loop that way. So it's basically you're supplementing the same hormone that your own body produces to make you get sleepy. And it's very, it's also an antioxidant actually. It's also easily broken down and excreted. Uh, and it's, that's for that reason also completely useless if you just take it during the daytime when you're still exposed to sunlight or bright artificial light, your body just breaks it all down. So it's one of those things that's effective and safe, but people are still scared of it for, I have, I have actually no idea, but it's, uh, yeah and you know for for some things i can come up with a clear theory like it's easy to abuse or something or it is actually toxic if you're an idiot and you you abuse it very roughly but with melatonin i think it's just one of those cases where uh, it aligns with most research showing uh, this is this is a very uh, disappointing fact about civilization i think but there's objectively almost no relation in research between the toxicity of a drug and its legal status <laughs> Oh, that is wild to me. Is there a, uh, I know over here you can get it in many different milligrams and, and I've uh, actually didn't realize, I, I want to say it was uh, our chief science officer on our team, Dr. Brandon Roberts was talking to me about uh, the dose he took and I, and it seemed very, very low to me. And he actually shared some science with me that um, suggested you don't really need that much, but I've heard of people taking upwards of 10 milligrams at a time. Like, is there a specific amount that is actually the standard dose in research that is proved to be like all you need? Three milligrams for most people is the maximum dosage that provides benefits. If you take larger doses, there are occasional side effects and some anecdotes about people waking up later, for example. But overall, most research finds it's completely safe and free of side effects. It's just useless to take more. Basically, the more melatonin you naturally produce, the less you need. Mm. So for most people, three milligrams is, is completely ample and saturates the effect. However, the, I think the latest meta-analysis concludes five milligram on average is still slightly more effective than three milligrams. And I think that's because there are some people that have either 
very poor, uh, very poor biorhythm, or they have shift work, or they're like me, where their body doesn't produce enough melatonin at regular hours itself. And those people benefit from the five milligram. So I think it's a case of if you're just a normal individual where you don't have particular sleep issues and you have a relatively stable um, um, schedule, so you get to you go to bed at a relatively similar time, you wake up at a relatively similar time every day, then three milligram is probably gonna have maximum effect. And anything you take beyond that is just useless. Uh, but some individuals might benefit from more. And I think if you have major jet lag, there's no research that I know on this, but the dose response would presumably go up a bit more. So maybe you'd benefit from 10 if you go from like uh, the US to Japan or China or something, you know? So this is the, the last question I have on this kind of topic, and then we'll dive into training. Um, I mean, being somebody who has sleep issues and somebody who travels constantly, like you're, you're a nomad, essentially, um, mm -hmm. do you have to like sneak it from country to country? Like, do you bring it with you? Have you found ways around having to take it to get sleep? Because um, I got to imagine on top of having the sleep issues or the, the lack of natural melatonin being produced in your body and traveling so much and from country to country, it's got to be hard. Mm, not necessarily. Uh, I would, of course, never violate a country's laws, but I'm also not one for bureaucracy, and neither are most people at customs uh, departments when it comes to purely, um, I guess, recreational or even supplemental. Uh, depending on where it is, it's, it's a supplement slash drug. Uh, they're just not concerned with it. So even if you have melatonin with you, uh, unless maybe something like Singapore, I don't know the legal status of Singapore, but I would... Um, I could guess that if it is illegal, uh, then I would not risk it going to Singapore. Um, but other than that, yeah, I don't think it's an issue, um, especially not when you say, you know, yeah, you're, I think uh, I've never had any, because I know a lot of people that fly a lot and they also sometimes take more stronger narcotics, for example, to sleep. And they often even tell the flight attendant, like, hey, I need water to take my um sleep medication and it's not like they're ever going to be like oh did you get a prescription <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely uh, all right uh let's dive into the training now so uh the first one is about full body training um and and i believe you were uh a fan i don't know if you're still a proponent of full body training and high frequency models um mm -hmm. but essentially just like when considering a full body and or high frequency training program like who is this best for and why would it be a better split than something like an upper lower or a push pull legs or, or a, a more of a bro split or anything like that? Currently in the research, the, the training frequency research, uh, and there is a lot. I think we have, I'm pretty sure we have over 20 studies at this point, suggest that higher training frequencies, ignoring any context for the moment, just looking at all the research and just tallying up results, there are multiple studies showing benefits, multiple studies showing considerable trends towards benefits. Most studies as a whole don't show significant benefits. And there's only one study with one muscle group out of four measured muscle groups that shows a detrimental effect for the biceps. And that was, wasn't even because there was a big difference in uh, between the groups. It was just that the high frequency group the, the biceps measurement didn't seem to change at all. So it's a bit uh, of a, an odd measurement, most likely what researchers would call a type one error. So finding a difference that isn't actually a difference is just you know, randomness or noise or um, a study issue. 
And based on that, I would say, well, you know, it's like if the research on protein intake, um, if we look at that, which is very similar, and we're looking at, for example, going from 1.4 to 1.6 gram per kilogram per day of protein, then you would actually have a similar literature, which would say, well, the majority of studies actually don't find a difference, but there are multiple studies that do find significant benefits. And there's basically no research. Uh, actually, <laughs> there is research showing that lower protein intakes are better, uh, which again is probably just type one error because we have so much research that eventually some studies kind of turn up to, gonna have results that just don't make sense just because of randomness. Um, but you know, the majority of research suggests it, it might it might be beneficial and certainly not harmful. Now, if we go into a bit more context of okay, for, for whom would it be beneficial? Then the evidence quite clearly suggests one trained individuals. In untrained individuals, the benefits are absolutely marginal. And that's because the main benefit of higher training frequencies is A, improved recovery capacity. This is something that does not come intuitive to most people, uh, not even myself. But there is considerable research that higher training frequencies improve recovery capacity, in part because they improve the quality of your work and they uh, prevent the diminishing returns uh, to extra volume within the same session. Like at some point, you're just doing more muscle damage, but you're not actually stimulating more muscle growth. Whereas if you split it up into separate sessions, you may get benefit. And it's specifically beneficial for trained individuals that can benefit from higher volume, which they indirectly get from splitting up their work over the week more. Um, and um, they're doing a lot of sets per week, at least 10 and probably more, because there is quite some research showing that most of the benefits um, of training frequency, higher training frequencies, may arise from an interaction effect between training volume and training frequency, where very simply put, at around 10 sets per session per muscle group, you're probably getting in a range where you're just um, breaking down more muscle protein and doing more muscle damage, but you're not stimulating more protein synthesis. Like your body gets the hint at some point, you know, you can just do one workout per month and grow the whole month. And because of that, if you go over a certain volume, you have to do more uh, sessions. And I think at this point in evidence-based fitness, there's, I'm inclined to say no one that would do one session per week with more than 10 sets um, per muscle group per week. And the consensus is mostly you need two sessions. And then the question is, are there benefits of doing more than two? And based on these studies, I would say that if you're an advanced trainee uh, and you're doing high volume training, then you would benefit from three plus sessions and possibly even much higher training frequencies like five, six, seven daily full body training, which is what I personally do, for example. But the benefits are, are not major and they're mostly the result of the fact you're doing extra volume. You know, if you have eight sets of uh, front squats on Tuesday and you take four of those and you move them to Friday, then your total repetition volume is going to go up. And that's what's driving the extra strength development and muscle growth we see in some studies, I think. Is it one of those things where, because I know I've heard of people referring to research saying that uh, when volume is equated, there's no difference. But would yes. you say that in practical application, um, volume might not be equated because if you do a higher frequency, you're probably going to exceed the volume that you would do in the other one? Does that make sense? Yes, that's exactly it. And if we look at volume equated research, there is still some research showing benefits, um, such as the Norwegian Frequency Project, one of the most infamous studies on this in the Norwegian National Powerlifting Team. 
but not much. And there have been a few meta-analyses now that show that on a volume equated basis, so you're doing the same total amount of repetitions uh, across the week, there is basically no difference, regardless of whether they're trained or untrained individuals. But I would also go so far as to say that if in any study there isn't a difference in training volume, even though the subjects were supposedly training to failure or, or close to it, uh, at least they weren't restrained artificially, and the higher training frequency group did not result in a to larger total training volume, I'm very skeptical of the whole study design. Because if, if you logically think about it, like in the example I just gave you, is there is there any realistic world where I tell you, look, we're going to take those eight sets of front squats, we're going to divide them into two sessions of four, and you're actually going to end up with the same total volume. So that's basically like saying your fourth set, the volume is, is going to be equal to your eighth set. Yeah. Like there is no way you're, you're training hard. Either you're, you're simply not, you're training so lightly that you don't have neuromuscular fatigue, so you can keep the volume up. Uh, or the study must be artificially equated. And I think that's something that in a lot of studies is not, it's a bit of a black box where they say it's volume equated and then they don't specify exactly how they achieve that. And sometimes, for example, they, they look at what one group does and then they restrict the other group from doing more or they occasionally add sets. Uh, there are a few methods to do it, but that is very often not explained. And I think that is actually extremely important to explain to make it ecologically valid. Because like I said, in any realistic um, scenario of, of how real um, advanced trainees train, you, you should always end up with more repetition volume and total tonnage if you're increasing your training frequency. Yeah. Yeah. There's never going to be a situation in real life where somebody's trying to build muscle and they say, hey, on this fourth one, cool it down a little bit. Like, don't go, don't train your hardest because we need to equate volume, <laughs> you know? And, and yeah. So uh, that makes a lot of sense. And, and semi-related, just like your opinions on periodization for hypertrophy in general. I mean, like, you know, I think this is one topic that I find very interesting because there's so much research on periodization. But when it comes to hypertrophy, I don't think there's as much. And I've read reviews on research saying that it's kind of inconclusive that there's any real benefit for hypertrophy compared to strength. Mm -hmm. um, and then you just look in the practical setting. There's so many amazing bodybuilders who they don't have any periodization. They do the same rep ranges and same volumes. Like maybe they increase volume over time just by getting a little stronger, but, um, but they are not really periodizing. They don't have like an undulation or a block periodization or anything like that. Um, but I was thinking about this cause Brad's new book, uh, I was reading through that and he has a very, very specific way he's periodizing strength and, the, and then uh, like moderate volume and then like metabolite training. Do you buy into any of that or do you kind of just stick with more of like an undulation, having a little bit of everything at, at in each block, or, or what's your opinion on periodization for hypertrophy in general? Overall, the research shows that periodization has no short-term effects on muscle growth. Almost all, all studies are short-term studies. And there was one study that uh, it's a, it wasn't the best study, like statistically, if you, if you look at the numbers, they, they aren't exactly as you would expect them. It's a Brazilian study, I think Car Carvalho et al. or something. Uh, it's on the blog. And it shows that in contrast to most studies, which are more short-term and just do one periodization phase, maybe compared to another group that does a different one, they looked at what happens when you do a strength phase and then a hypertrophy phase. In that study, the group that did a strength phase first gained more muscle during the second hypertrophy phase and even ended up, surprisingly, 
with more total gains at the end of the total study, suggesting that strength gains potentiate subsequent hypertrophy. That's pretty much the only evidence at this point that any form of what of block periodization, because that's you have different training blocks, mm -hmm. is beneficial for muscle growth. Now, it's definitely beneficial for strength development to periodize your training. And the most consensus is that daily undulating periodization, which basically means you're alternating between rep ranges every time you do an exercise, is, is the best method. But based on that research and the fact that higher muscle activity, which you could gain from uh, getting stronger, you could have higher rates of rate coding. So your muscle fibers basically learn to fire faster. That could allow you to put more mechanical tension on your muscle fibers, which is the, the primary stimulus for muscle growth. So we do have a decent theory that's not grounded in a lot of evidence, but um, you know, a, a decent theory with, with some support for it, that strength gains over time may potentiate muscle growth. So knowing that periodization improves strength development, we could say, well, then it's plausible that over the long run, it might also benefit muscle growth, but it certainly wouldn't be a major effect. So, you know, the fact that we see a lot of people being very successful without it shows it's clearly viable, but it might be optimal to still have some daily undulating periodization. I think block periodization is a really far, uh, is a big stretch. Um, anything beyond facilitating strength development to potentiate subsequent muscle growth, I think is a, is a big stretch at this point, including like metabolite training. And I'm not, I'm not very convinced in, in any of that. Uh, I mean, there are multiple reasons you could do it. For example, I like high rep raises sometimes, but I don't call it metabolite training, uh, even though you know, it might actually be sort of the same recommendation as Brad would give. But my recommendation would be maybe we target the type 1 fibers a little bit more. Uh, we're giving your joints a break because it's much easier on your connective tissues. Um, and it's just, it's a psychological variation, which for some people might be beneficial. But I, I wouldn't say you're actually stimulating different growth pathways or that periodization is in any form really necessary for robust muscle growth. That makes a lot of sense. I think uh, I, I've noticed a lot of people either kind of taking a power building approach, some successful people taking a power building approach where they're basically doing bodybuilding, but they end up having some lower rep compound lifts in there so that they just kind mm -hmm. of continually build strength over time. Or there's the people that every uh, three or four mesocycles throw in like a, a strength block, you know, so it's still like a three or four to one ratio of hypertrophy to strength training, but they have those like, I know like Mike and some people call them desensitization phases and stuff like that, where they just do a higher intensity phase. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's, it's clear that it doesn't need to be as structured or long-term as a block periodization. So, um, I like that description a lot, man. I want to make sure that uh, I respect your time and I want to bring up your book real quick. We didn't get as much time as I wanted to, to discuss on that. And honestly, I could keep asking you, tons of questions because you have so much good info, man. Um, so I appreciate your time, but I want to bring up your book real quick. Um, if you can tell the listeners uh, what the, the latest book is, like the title and, and really what it's about. I think it's an interesting topic that I haven't seen anybody in the evidence-based community uh, of, of your stature really dive into. So I'm excited to dive into it. And I think a lot of listeners would get a lot out of it. So if you could share what the book is, really what it's about and where they could find it, that'd be great. Sure. It's called The Science of Self-Control. And it's about it's more of a general life book. The biggest part is about diet adherence, but it's also about productivity management, making your workouts easier, increasing general motivation for things in life, and just overall personal development and life success, essentially. And the reason I wrote it is in part because I don't see many people in evidence-based fitness pay attention to these things. And I think it's something that can reach a broader audience than I would normally reach, which is, you know, my core audience is definitely intermediate plus trainees, that are definitely more serious than the average person 
training, uh, like in my coaching page, I say, if you're not training three times a week, you know, uh, my coaching is probably overkill for you. You can find someone that's uh, a lot more affordable and will probably give you very similar results. So, you know, that that's my, my core market. And I post pretty advanced things, mostly on study reviews on my Instagram and Facebook and stuff. But this book is very mainstream in the sense of, I think it's, if you're at all intellectual or care about personal development, then this is a super relevant book for you. So that, that's really the, the reason I wrote it. And because I had a lot of things that didn't lend themselves well to just, you know, an Instagram or a tweet or something to say, and also things that require some buy-in because there are a lot of harsh truths and things like, um, for example, like we talked about cheap meals and those kind of things where the, the happy Instagram message is really not, it's the information people want to hear, but not the information people need to hear. So there's a lot of that in the book, like the, the real things that matter, the things people need to hear to be successful, which aren't always the nice things. Like it's not a book with, uh, you know, secrets and biohacks. There are some, some things that are, I think, very uncommon um, and not many people have talked about, but it's not a six, six weeks to six pack uh, um, book that, like most of those books doesn't deliver. I think this is more the, the, the gritty truth, the, sci the scientific gritty truth with some uh, surprising findings. Yeah, I love that. And I'm glad you wrote it. And, and like I said, I'm excited to read it. And um, I'm assuming everybody can find that on Amazon and probably your website and everything. So I'm going to link those mm -hmm. in the description for people to check out. Um, and and I, I think it's a, a great topic simply because like you said, I think a lot of people seek motivation when they really need to be building self-discipline, you know, and I don't want to sound like the hardcore mm -hmm. bro of work harder, uh, play less kind of shit. But um, it's very true in today's that we're, we're constantly seeking that motivational thing or biohack when in reality, a lot of times it just takes hard work, patience, grit, self-discipline. And like you said, self-control. I mean, like really figuring out how to master that yourself in all assets of life, I think is such a valuable trait that leads to success. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And the, I think one big message of the book is also that it doesn't take a lot of natural self-discipline. It's much more about planning, habit mm -hmm. formation, uh, setting the right kind of goals, having the right approach to goal setting and uh, being smart about arranging your, your daily schedule and those kind of things. Um, like it's not a, a white knuckle kind of disciplinary approach. That is the goal, but it doesn't require you to be uh, like a robot, basically. Mm -hmm. It's in fact a lot. Of big part of the book is um, about how to become more disciplined without actually relying on your self control. Yeah. Well, in in discipline and willpower aren't finite, or they're not infinite. So um, if you use, that's why people cave in on their diet so much. They're constantly saying no and and trying to resist things in their house and stuff. It's like, well, just toss the fucking cookies and then you don't look at them, you don't see them and then you don't have to use willpower to avoid them, you know, uh, which is like you said, having structure, a plan and system can help you not need to use those things. Um, so that's, that's huge. I love that. So we'll link that in the description um, real quick. Where can everybody find you? Cause I know we're running up on time, uh, Instagram website, all that kind of stuff. So I can link those in the description as well. Sure. com is everything. If you want to follow uh, individual study results and quick things, I'm on Facebook and Twitter or I'm on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Twitter, I'm basically not active anymore because the kind of information I post generally doesn't fit into a tweet. Um, and I have a newsletter. If you're new to my content, that's probably the best way to get to know me. If you go to my homepage, it's the first thing you'll see, my newsletter. You'll get a free email course with a lot of contents, my most popular contents, things people enjoyed the most, 
and I think are most valuable. Um, so that's probably the best introduction for people that don't know me yet to, to get to know my kind of content. Perfect. I'll link all that in the description and everybody listen. You can also just Google his name and then a lot of stuff will come up. So Menno, thank you so much for spending the time with me, man. I really appreciate it. My pleasure.